Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Who are these people? Who is most affected? And it's just staggeringly is women. And then figuring out how specifically does this happen and the many permutations of how experiencing or surviving intimate partner violence will lead to becoming unhoused. And there, there are many. This week, we talked to an investigative reporter who tackled how domestic or intimate partner violence can often lead to homelessness among women in Los Angeles. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Julia Paskin is a radio producer and writer. KPCC and Elliot recently launched a series she produced entitled Pushed Out, LA's Unhoused Women. Julia, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me. And I mentioned this before we turned on the mics. I'm going to tell people how the sausage is made a little bit. When I do these interviews, I send out questions ahead of time. And I had gotten mixed up in my schedule, and I sent questions to Julia very late. And then she wrote back to me, uh, including a paragraph that I'm not going to read it, but we're going to talk about it, where she you know, tells me her story. And I find her story quite interesting. So tell me, you didn't start out being a journalist, did you? No, no. I mean, I, I took an AP journalism course in high school, and I've, I've always been drawn to it. But quite honestly, I mean, for many years, I just I didn't have the academic confidence because I thought of myself as an as an artist. And so though I had the, the dream of it, I just didn't really think I could go down that route and only found it, you know, like a decade later. And what got you into audio storytelling? You know, I, I found myself in my 20s, deeply unhappy you know, really confronting depression and anxiety and, and realizing that a big piece of that was needing to feel more fulfilled in my work. And I had been an artist, I had been in the performing arts. And so there was something about storytelling that I really missed. And that I think is just kind of intrinsically part of me and part of my, you know, feeling like a, an actualized human being. And, you know, my favorite thing to do was to, was to listen to podcasts and to NPR programming. So I just didn't think I had the ability to do it. I was really intimidated by learning, you know, digital audio workstations and like learning Pro Tools and Audition and and even learning broadcast and, and print writing just seemed like something that was out of my ability. But then I'd worked in politics for a while. That was a, a strange way that I found myself in into kind of building confidence. And then I started taking classes at Pasadena City College. I sat in the front row of one of the classes taught by someone who actually is, I think he's the vice president of operations at PCC. I'm sorry, at KPCC. And I just hustled and just raised my hand and was that really annoying student and tried to do really well and just told him periodically, hey, are there any internships? Are there any, any internships? Which is usually not a thing that, that happens through the community college. It's it's more about getting people into operations. You know, our, our engineers, we have amazing engineers and many of them come through the city college route, but usually not our content creators. They tend to come through, you know, Annenberg or, you know, one of the really prestigious journalism schools. So the fact that I was able to get an internship was my way of getting the foot my foot in the door at a place that... I think usually the, the gates would have been kept closed for somebody like me without the experience. And also just, you know, I didn't, I didn't have like a substantial savings account. I was driving for Lyft at the same time that I was interning. You know, there's a, a lot of hustling involved in making that transition. Yeah, people admire hustle. And I don't think that's something that, that I don't think people recognized often when they're, they're thinking about their careers. You know, they may work hard and everything, but 
you know, working in lots of different ways and choosing a non-traditional path to get where you want to go, that's a really kind of an admirable and a great thing to do. Clearly, they recognize that you had this ability in you in some sense, or at least you had the drive. And so you were able to eventually turn that into a gig of some sorts with public media? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that... I think the coolest thing that I took out of the experience was that, you know, for each individual person, your your breadth of experience is your superpower. Your identity is your superpower. And I was really lucky to land in a place to be in a newsroom where I was able to tell stories that resonated with my experience. You know, I was able to report on communities that I had already been organizing in. And so I was working as an intern at uh, Take Two on KPCC, which which just went off the air. It was hosted by A. Martinez, who's who's now going to host Morning Edition. But that was where I really, you know, I, I learned how to do all different kinds of segments. It was a really great show to work on because you, you learned how to do, you know, a two-way conversation like this, but also how to do a narrative feature. And I, I was lucky to have people that were kind and, and patient. And I, you know, I started working for like 12, 50 an hour, 20 hours a week. And uh, <laughs> it was like five years the ago. Big, um, the big and, money. Yeah, the big money. So that's, you know, that's my, my driving for Lyft to try to pay my rent. You know, it worked out. And then I wound up filling in. I know. Then I got a news apprenticeship for about a year. And then I wound up being a fill-in producer. And then they created a new job, which was kind of a roving producer. So I, I trained on every single show, including news producing. And that's when I started reporting. The news producers and the reporters work hand-in-hand hand to fill our newscasts. And that's when I realized, hey, perhaps I can do this. So let's talk now about the project that you worked on for KPCC and LAist called Pushed Out LA's Unhoused Women. You know, How did this come about? We were really fortunate. Our newsroom received a grant from the Blue Shield Foundation specifically to cover the intersection of domestic violence or what I now commonly call intimate partner violence and homelessness. And so we just were given that edict, you know, go report on this, tell a bunch of stories, do a series. However you do it is pretty much up to you. So I started reaching out to folks and looking at the data, which was not terribly substantial. It's not not really recorded enough. But figuring out, you know, who are these people, who is most affected, and it's just staggeringly is women, and then figuring out, you know, how specifically does this happen in the many permutations of how experiencing or surviving intimate partner violence will lead to becoming unhoused. And there, there are many. So I like to talk about the nuts and bolts of reporting sometimes. So you say you reach out to people, you looked at data or data, it's not Star Trek, and <laughs> that's, how, that's how that all gets screwed up. Captain Picard called him that. Oh, I know. I'm a big Star Trek fan. I know the lore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Patrick Stewart called him Data, so now everybody calls him. It says Data. Now you know it. Now you're smarter. Moment, moment on our podcast. So, was it just you on this project? I was the main reporter. Yes, I, I was the only reporter, but I had tremendous support from my main editor, Suzanne Levy, and then also the senior producer for Take Two, Megan Larson, because we, we featured all of the radio pieces on Take Two. The show really anchored, you know, at each week we were able to bring a different piece of the series there. So I received a tremendous amount of editorial support, but I was the only reporter, yes. And I know that you, you're working for a, a public media station, and so it, it's not surprising that there's an audio element to it. You know, was there thinking from very early on that you wanted to create, you know, audio storytelling to go along with it? We're still experimenting at KPCC and LAist with how we tell a story both 
with an audio story for on-demand or broadcast, you know, or a print story for web. And so for this particular one, we did, because of the deadlines and the timing of everything, we wound up doing all of the radio stories first. So while the content is very much the same, the the way that the stories are anchored is is different. And because it's radio, it's much more, I'd say, the sources are really more the anchor of the story. And so it's it's more, I'd say, character driven. You're more invested specifically in the experience of our survivor sources. And they still lead the stories of, of our LAist pieces, but it's a little different the way you present information. Yeah, I would imagine it would be a little more journalistically, the stories that here are all the facts and here are the different perspectives, whereas with the audio, because you're taking advantage of the power of, you know, personal narrative, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And I was very fortunate that, you know, I, I had one particular source that was open to meeting with me in person before everybody was fully vaccinated. You know, we, we had we did the masks and I had a boom uh, pole so that we could be physically distanced. But, you know, she took me on a walk through her former neighborhood, um, including two of her former encampments and described very much, you know, what the experience was of living outside and being able to have that conversation outside with the sound, I think, really brings us into her experience, you know, in a different way. So how were you able to identify people that you could talk to? You know, it, we, we struggled with how to do that um, because you have to you have to make sure that your sources are safe, most of all. So I chose to go mainly through providers for a handful of reasons. The main one is their safety, so that, that it is guaranteed that they are currently safe from an abuser and that they have access to a number of support and uh, mental health, what am I trying to say, mental health services. Because, you know, when you're asking somebody to, to sometimes repeatedly relive extreme trauma in detail, it can be very triggering. And I think historically, as journalists, you know, even the, those of us with the best intentions can sometimes be a little irresponsible in the way we conduct ourselves in, in pushing those emotional buttons. So it was really important to do at least my, the best that I could to make sure that if I'm going to push those buttons, I'm doing it with people who have already started to have these conversations. They're physically safe. If it brings stuff up, they have someone they can talk to that is you know, already a provider in their lives. And many of them were also people who, who wanted to start getting into advocacy as part of their healing process. So having these conversations with me was a way of them claiming back agency from their story. And that, that was very important to me as well. So what, what did you learn about homelessness that you didn't know before? You know, I think I do have a bit of an unusual perspective in that the concept of homelessness is not entirely alien to me. You know, it's been people that I in my life have been touched by homelessness. I've spent much of my childhood in housing court trying to, you know, <laughs> stave off eviction in New York City. So there's a lot of it that wasn't shocking to me that was more shocking, I'd say, to, to editors. You know, the fact that I'd say the sheer brutality of it is hard to bear. Maybe what was most edifying for me was how law enforcement played a role in making living outside incredibly difficult for women. Stories of being roused in the middle of the night, criminalized for being unhoused. You know, maybe to boot the idea that some of the requirements for entering a women's shelter are very shocking. You know, like you can't bring your kids with you or you can't work anymore. You know, you understand that the policies were put in place for a specific reason, generally the safety of the residents and the staff at the, at the shelter. But 
nevertheless, it's like, how do you how do you move forward with your life? How do you expect somebody to work themselves out of homelessness when you don't allow them to work? So were there any particular stories that stood out for you when you when you were reporting it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to choose. Each individual story is, is very compelling. I would say, you know, I would say probably the story of, um, of a woman named Cherry who had survived about 12 years of, of pretty intense abuse, had already experienced homelessness while still with her abuser as a result of his financial abuse. And uh, by the time she was able to leave, she was pregnant with her fourth child. And she was forced to flee with literally her babes in arms and pregnant because she feared for her life. And the idea of, you know, the image that she tells of just being truly that vulnerable and having nowhere to go, it sticks with me. So when you started out this project, did you have a particular, you know, goal or, you know, did the project sort of evolve as you were covering it? I guess I'm saying, did you start from sort of an organized place and this is the way I'm going to approach it? Or did you have to sort of, I don't want to say work on the fly, but maybe adapt as you went deeper into it? Oh, sure. There was there was a lot of adapting and a lot of reworking and, and rewriting and restructuring of the story. But I, I think, you know, it was always rooted in how do we do this responsibly? And how do we tell the stories in a way that answers certain questions that people who've never touched that kind of situation might ask, you know, the questions like, well, why do you stay for so long? Or, you know, why don't you just get a job? You know, the, the kind of assumptions that people make. And to also illustrate the point that becoming homeless is incredibly easy in America, especially in a housing market like Los Angeles. When you start to add the layers of vulnerability it just becomes all the more plausible to become unhoused. We definitely wanted to pull away the mystique of, you know, for a lot of our, our readers, and we do, you know, we're NPR, we're an NPR station. So we have a lot of uh, listeners of privilege, you know, who it's not really in their imagination that within a month's time, you can become unhoused. We wanted to illustrate that that happens in a really tangible way to people who are doing the very best that they can. That was always important. Did you have a hope that, you know, by covering these types of stories and, you know, talking to people who were homeless and examining their situations that, you know, maybe there'd be a greater understanding in your audience? I have three hopes. <laughs> One is that someone reading or listening would say, I'm not alone, because that's the hardest part of coming forward is just breaking the stigma. So for someone that is a survivor or is currently experiencing abuse, for it to be helpful in that sense, maybe to even to connect to one of the resources that we've linked. Second, it would be really great if someone reading it would go, oh, maybe I should stop giving my sister such a hard time for that jerk that she's dating. Because the truth is, is that if you keep giving her such a hard time, once she's able or feels the need to leave, she won't be able to come to you because you've already shamed her. So those are two really big things. And then the third would be the fact that this is just underreported, underfunded, under-resourced. There's the assumption that homeless women are covered under other streams of, of funding, which is just not true. So yeah, it would be great if some policymakers were to see the reporting and decide to prioritize the needs because they're very real. So the story in and of itself is, is wrapped up. Are you going to do future reporting around it? As part of our reporting, we have embedded a tool that our newsroom uses to connect with people in our audience. And so we have a deluge of submissions coming in of people 
coming forward about their own experiences. And so we're going to take our time with that and sift through it and see what kind of reporting we can do with that to continue to to shed light on this, but more directly through our audience. Okay. I know that we're, we're talking about you know a project that is looking at homelessness from a domestic violence point of view. And you mentioned that there were resources there. I mean, you know, how did you work that into the story and you know what type of resources are you including? You know, part of the issue for people is that it's really difficult to navigate. Like anybody that's gone through, you know, looking for social services, trying to get help from nonprofits, you know, you're working generally with people who are overworked and even with the biggest hearts don't have enough resources, right? It's, it's just really hard. And so we wanted to provide resources that we knew were already available. And so we, prov- we specifically got those from providers that we were interviewing because so many of these resource lists that people get sent or they're told to call like a, you know, a 211 community resource hotline and the resources aren't valid. Like they're just, they're just not open anymore. They're not functioning or their doors have closed. So we wanted to make sure that anything we did provide actually was able to take people. And we've had a, a support from our engagement team, which is a super cool thing about our newsroom. And they helped us put that together and have helped us continue to, to talk with providers to keep that list updated. Because that's my biggest concern is it falling out of date. So I know you said that there were other people who had sent sent you their stories after your project went up. What's been the reaction to it within the community? Wow. There is such a need for this kind of reporting. People feel so unheard, you know, and it really does speak to to the need of journalists, of the role that that we can play in terms of opening a conversation and, and allowing people to be heard, specifically from the survivors that were quoted they have been very supportive of the reporting itself, which, you know, I wanted to make sure that they felt represented in a productive way. But we've had, I mean, all over social media, all over our our website, it's been, you know, thank you for reporting on this. This isn't talked about enough. We've had a number of men come forward and say, I've also experienced this, which is absolutely true. Like, you know, domestic violence and homelessness, it does not know a gender. Every gender expression can very easily become homeless through this route. But, you know, in terms of the public health crisis, Statistically, it is so much, so many women, but it was very moving to see a number of people come forward and say, hey, you know, this this affects me too. And to also see a lot of people come forward and say, this is still me and I don't know how to get out. And those are the people that, you know, we have to figure out how do we interact with them. And that's why I'm taking my time because, you know, so if I send an email to someone who is being monitored, you know, what's my responsibility to keep them safe? So this is somewhat new territory for me. Did you have any guidelines that you were particularly following or did you just sort of set that, okay, these are the things I'm, I'm going to do. These are the things I'm not going to do because, you know, it could put someone in danger. How did you sort of develop that toolkit to cover the story? Yeah, I learned that toolkit from providers themselves, from the people who work in the resource centers. They answer the hotlines. You know, they're folks that generally they get maybe a 15 minute window of safety where they can make contact. And so there are certain rules, you know, we are building um, a quick exit button into our website, because, you know, a lot of you, you might see on a lot of domestic violence websites, that there's a safety exit button, because if your abuser walks in, you need to be able to click out quickly. And it will take you to like, you know, weather.com or something innocuous like that. So those little tools, the ways the methods of surveillance, down to looking at your phone records, you know, that's all stuff I learned from providers who helped women get to safety. One of the things you, you mentioned was that not enough reporters covering these stories. And I would hope, you know, maybe from our conversation, our audience is, you know, predominantly journalists. What would you say to a person who wants to tackle this story or even, you know, homelessness 
and domestic violence separately. So with that in mind, I would very much recommend looking into the tenets of trauma-informed reporting. You know, you got to do a lot of listening. You have to trust people. You have to ask a lot of open-ended questions. And I would also recommend, you know, think about, as journalists, we're trained to disconnect ourselves from our emotions. And that is generally, I think, a good thing, right? We want to stay as impartial as we can. But the fact is, we're talking about human suffering in both of these situations. There's no, there's no like, party politic to intimate partner violence or to living unhoused. So I think letting your empathy in and your humanity in is absolutely appropriate. And when we fight that, it sometimes alienates us from our sources. So, you know, be a human. Remember that you're triggering people. You're asking them to relive things that are very difficult. Make sure that they're supported as much as you can. And if they don't have support, at least give them your gratitude and your respect. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, you're in a bad position. Generally, most reporters are housed. I would say, you know, remember that <laughs> there's someone just like yourself. There's really no need to talk to them with pity. Yeah, for sure. And that was my experience in interviewing homeless people. I felt that sometimes when, you, when you're a journalist and go out and you cover a story, you're looking for a source. And really what you're looking for is quotes or a point of view or maybe a story. And then you sort of move on to find another source or another aspect of the story. And, you know, my own personal experience was that it really was a sort of establishing this relationship of trust, that you were honest and you're open and you created situations where the person could feel comfortable. That was my, my experience. And then just listen. And then, you know, if you don't get the answer to what you're particularly looking for, then you have another conversation later on. It's a reporter's responsibility to sometimes be an arbiter in between perhaps what an editor or even your own storytelling instincts, you know, because we're, you have to build drama, right? This is something you need to do. Yeah. You have to have plot points. Like this is part of constructive storytelling. It's part of, you know, writing any anything that's compelling. You want readers to enjoy it. You want them to continue reading through the whole story. But you can't do that at the expense of your source's humanity. I feel like that does happen a lot in our industry. So however you, you know, whatever gut check you need to do, I would recommend it. I mean, in addition, you know, I gave my sources a lot of license. I was like, look, you know, I'm going to record all this. It's not going to air within the next couple of weeks. So as you're thinking about this, is, is there something that you want to rephrase or you're like, I really don't feel comfortable talking about that. Let me know. And we were able to do that. There were a couple of really, you know, intense places that we went in conversations that later on they said, hey, either for the sake of my kids, my family, or just this is just something I don't really think is appropriate to have on air. Let's not talk about that. And there was never a problem eliminating. They weren't things that were important to the story. You know, it wasn't like I was taking truth away, but I was respecting their wishes. And I think that's really important. You can't just see them as objects. No, that's for sure. So I, I know you said that you had gotten some some mail and people had sort of pitched you some other, you know, experiences and, you know, maybe something will grow out of this. You know, are there any other projects like this that you're going to be working on? You know, we're taking it slowly with this. I don't think we really know what's going to happen quite yet. The responses that we get are going to inform it. We have a big goal in our newsroom of audience-driven reporting. And so that's really going to be our guiding light there. Beyond that, I'm, I'm working as a general assignment reporter for KPCC and LAist through at least through the summer. We'll see. We'll see. Do you have a particular beat? 
I'm breaking news and breaking news of the day. So the last couple of days I've been working on the LAPD had detonated some seized illegal fireworks. And so there's been a lot of, you know, impact on the community. And so I've been following up with some of the residents and that are, you know, have really not been supported the way that they should. So, you know, it's interesting. Some of the, some of what I learned about trauma-informed reporting has already come up because I realized some of the people I was interviewing yesterday they experienced a trauma. And so there was a certain sensitivity and respect that I felt I needed to introduce into the conversation that, you know, you don't need in everyday interviews. So that was, uh, that was illuminating. So tell me a little bit, you're a general assignment reporter for a website slash radio station. What tools do you go into the field with? How are you recording audio? Right now I've been using like this really fancy, beautiful Marantz that's been issued, but I also... I also have this handy Zoom mic <laughs> that I plug in an external. It's like a, it's a rodeo. I think it's called like the reporter mic. It honestly, it sounds just as good and it costs so much less <laughs> than what the, the station lets me borrow in the field. But they both do a perfectly fine job. Julia, you know, I encourage everybody to go check out this project. It's really well done. It's really deep. And, you know, the audio is is moving. I think it's very powerful. And I think it you do a great job of illustrating this, the stories that these women have. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It means a lot for a, another journalist to care about the story. Thanks. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.